You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, good morning and welcome. Would you stand with me as we honor God with the reading of His Word today? You can direct your attention to the screen. Our scripture reading today will be from Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. All God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated and welcome again here today. Um, So glad you're here to kick off the Christmas season with us, or as Christians have traditionally called it. For a long time, they've called it the Advent season, and part of the reason, glad you're here today, uh, is that we are kicking off this new series, as you can see, for most of the month of December. Uh, It's called Rediscovering, Rediscovering the Gifts of Christmas, and all this month, We're going to be taking a look at the things that I think we long for most within ourselves and the things we long for most in the world and our culture right now. And as we look at those things, we're going to see that those things are the things that the person of Jesus came to bring us all along. And the gift or the thing we're talking about today may be the one thing that we long for most. It's the one thing our world is looking for right now, the most, I believe. And yet it's the one thing that it seems like it's the hardest of them all to find. A couple of years ago, the New York Times ran an article that was called The 50 States of Anxiety. 50 States of Anxiety and reported what Google searches have been telling us for about the last eight years or so, which is that there is an epidemic of anxiety flooding our nation in specific. And then just a few months ago, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, put out its report that Americans are nearly twice as anxious as they were even just a year ago. My point in saying this is, it's not just you. You're not the only one feeling like this. It's a lot of us. It's that guy in front of you at the ATM that gave you the side eye. You know, it's the lady behind you in the drive-thru that keeps honking so you get out of her way. It's the person online reading your post. Like, why did they respond that way? People are nearly twice as anxiety-ridden as they were just a year ago. And what a lot of this research is telling us is that our national state of anxiety has reached a tipping point. It's becoming a national crisis despite, and this is something that all this research points out, despite our maternal and infant survival rates being far higher than people throughout the ages, despite the far lower odds we have of our lives ending in violence compared to almost everyone in many generations past, despite the massive uptick in life expectancy and survival rates overall when compared to generations past, we feel more anxious than ever. I'm I'm less talking today about any kind of disorder and more than I'm just talking about people, you and I, we, struggling with existence today. 
And yet, a long time ago, in the middle of the first century, in a century that was marked by war, by violence, by famine, by disease, by oppression, into a culture full of all those things, wanders a Christian, someone named the Apostle Paul. And Paul, writing from, of all places, prison, writing from prison to a people being persecuted, whose life expectancy was far lower than ours, who live in a culture far more violent and disease-ridden and bloodthirsty than ours, writing to a people who had every reason for panic-level anxiety, writing to a people whose friends would be martyred by the government, whose property would be confiscated by the empire, into all of that emotional space, wanders the Apostle Paul. And in this letter, Philippians, writing from prison, he writes to them and to us today, and he makes this astonishing statement and gives us this astonishing command. Verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything, about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I don't know about you, I think this is an incredible statement. What's he talking about? Well, the word anxious here is a fascinating little biblical insight. The anxious comes from a Greek word, which means to be scattered. It means to be scattered. It means to be divided. Anxious in the Greek means to have so much happening, so much going on, so much to worry about, that you are scattered internally. You're divided internally. You're lost internally. You feel scattered to the point you are coming apart. Anxiety comes when we feel scattered, restless, Divided. And of course, I think there's a lot of reasons for that today. I think our smartphone addiction scatters us. We can't focus. We can't be present. We can't concentrate. I think our 24-7 news cycle scatters us. I think a lot of what's in our 24-7 news cycle scatters us. I think the pressure we feel to keep up with that person or that neighbor a lot of times scatters us. Or just to keep up with our kids' schedules, if you have kids, that keeps you scattered divided, anxious. But Paul says, you don't have to feel this way. You don't have to be anxious. And as a matter of fact, he goes on to say, and we're going to see it, that you can experience the opposite of anxiety. You can experience peace and not just any peace, but something Paul calls the peace of God. The peace of God. Look at verse six. He says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, look at this, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Well, let me give you a little bit different kind of lens for this. I think what this means, if you didn't catch it, this means that there is actually a kind of a battle for your peace. There's a battle for your internal well-being that just being alive causes you to face. There's a battle for your mental health. Anxiety, he's saying, comes to wage war, to battle against you, to attack you. And you can know this from this one little word that Paul uses here. He says that the peace of God, if you have it, the peace of God, when you have it, acts like one thing in your life. It acts, he says, like a guard. 
like a guard. And this word guard is a specific, again, Greek military term. It means to keep safe with military power, to keep safe by surrounding with soldiers, to keep safe or to protect with force in order to prevent an invasion. See, in essence, we're being told, we're being told here with that one word, hey, humanity, adjust your expectations, (laughs) Adjust your expectations. With that one word, I think Paul has shown us we, at a certain level, should expect to be facing and attacked by anxiety. Because why else would you need to be guarded from it? Why else would you need to guard something if you didn't expect that something that was precious to be attacked? You only put up a guard when there's something precious that could be robbed or stolen or attacked or taken from you. He's saying you should expect anxiety to attack, to expect your heart and your mind to be constantly attacked from forces that try to scatter you, to pull you apart. Adjust your expectations, Paul is saying on one hand. Face reality. That's the way the world works, Paul is saying. Uh, When our kids, for example, uh, when our kids were super small, maybe you've been there, you've lived this, our kids were so excited to go see grandma and grandpa on an airplane. And for those of you who travel all the time, of course, you know it's likely that for you, that travel bubble has burst. (laughs) The luster of air travel has been lost. Why? It's because you know that traveling by air, especially when you're back with humanity in coach, uh, it ain't all that, right? Ain't all that, especially if you're international on coach. We had to tell all our kids, you know, when they fly, your ears are going to hurt all the way up and all the way down. You are going to have to sit still for a really long time. You can't kick the seat in front of you. And most of all, traveling by air essentially means standing in one long line after another. You'll be standing in line at the check-in. You'll be standing in line going through security. You'll be standing in line to get food. You'll be standing in line at the gate. You'll be standing in line to find your seat on the plane. You'll be standing in line to get off the plane. And you'll be standing in line to get picked up, rental car, shuttle, friend, whatever. Why did we tell them that? Well, it was so, it was in the hopes that their expectations would be adjusted so they didn't lose their peace, they wouldn't get anxious and like freak out on us on the flight. You say, well, did it work? No, not at all. (laughs) It was still terrible because they were like two, three, and four, you know. And our our two-year-old on that flight, he actually screamed so loud for so long that the flight attendant, this is a true story, came over and offered Carrie, my wife, a little bottle of free alcohol (laughs) in the hope she would give it to the child to put the child to sleep. Yes. And when our child finally keeled over, alcohol-free, thank you very much, keeled over, face asleep on mom's lap, exhausted from his emotional ordeal, this is truly what what happened, the whole plane broke out into applause. (laughs) Front to back. It was that bad. Yeah. It was humiliating, and of course, just by the way, a little pro tip traveler thing for you. If you're on on that flight, you know what I'm saying, if you hear a screaming child, just don't get grouchy. Just know, listen, no one wants that child to be quiet (laughs) more than the parents, more than mom and dad, because they're getting that whole screaming thing in stereo. But the point is, at that age, for my kids, the talk didn't help. Because, you know, English language, three-year-old brain, all that. But just a couple of years later, thankfully, on another flight to see Grandma and Grandpa, that same speech was actually a game-changer. It helped a lot. 
because they needed their expectations adjusted to be able to face reality, to face what was truly going to happen. And Paul right here, I think, to a point, is letting us know the same thing. The reality is, he's showing us, is that your heart will be threatened. The reality is you have an enemy called anxiety that comes to batter you, that comes to beat you, attack your heart, scatter your mind, divide your soul. And you need a guard, you need a force, you need a power in your life called the peace of God to guard your heart and your mind. So how do we get it? How do we get that? How do we get the peace of God in our lives? Let me just acknowledge up front, there's a, a number of resources that can come into play here. Medical resources can be helpful, psychological resources, great counseling, therapy, physical resources like eating right, not overworking, exercising, taking a nap. Yes, these are all good. They're all helpful. Believe in all of those. would encourage you in all of those. But let me just say to you, you will never get here what Paul is promising without applying these spiritual resources as well. Spiritual resources for a spiritual kind of battle. And there are three I want to take a look at and show you right here. What are they? What are Paul's spiritual resources for accessing the peace of God? Look at verse 8. Here's the first one. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, (coughs) if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Oh, so he's saying here the first key to peace is to think your way into it. Yeah, think your way into peace. You're like, what in the world? That's not like that book I saw at Barnes and Noble. No, it's not. (laughs) What is this? Well, most scholars believe that what Paul is talking about here, when he says something's true, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, what he is primarily referring to is Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine, big picture Bible truths. So let me try to show you how this works. Let's try just one. Let's just think about one thing, Bible-wise, Christians believe and say is true, something that is the most true. What is most true is that there is a God, a loving, powerful creator God who made everything. This God made a perfect world with perfect beauty. He put people into it, but they broke his heart. They broke his world, and now they fight, and now they scratch, and now they claw to try to keep him out. But this God loves us so much that he kept coming and he kept coming and he kept coming till one day he sent himself in the form of his son Christ Jesus to prove to you that he loves you, to prove to you that you are not an accident, to prove to you that he has a purpose for your life and to show you he can turn even the worst pain into your life, in your life into something amazing even if you, like Paul, are locked in a prison. And one day this God has promised by his own power to return and to heal and to transform the world and to make all things new. That is what is most true. Now, do you think that if you thought about that over and over and over again, and you got it down on the inside, it might bring you peace, the peace of God. Yeah, it would. Why? Because you then would be thinking out the implications of the Christian worldview. Think on these things, Paul says. Peace of God will come. But let's consider just for a moment the opposite of that. I want to major in this for a moment. Let's consider or think on or think about the implications of a world without God 
without a creator. Or let me actually just allow a couple of other people to draw that out for us for a moment. First one, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin said this, quote, A man who has no assured or ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. Well, there's one. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., a famous Supreme Court chief justice, uh, he wrote this to a friend. He wrote, quote, There is no reason for attributing to a man a difference in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance. And the only reason is that it is incongruous to the world I want, the world everyone is trying to make according to one's own power. Now, of course, you didn't like reading that. A lot of people have given him heat for saying that. But let's just ask, what's he doing? He is thinking out the implications of his worldview, as was Darwin and a whole host of other honest atheistic philosophers. They're saying if there is no God, they both are saying, then your life is pointless. Hear me. Your children's lives are pointless. And your job is only a pathetic excuse to delay the inevitable, which is death. And the only way to go on living, if you don't kill yourself, is to exercise, see, they're saying, power as you see fit. That's what both these men are saying because they're accurately working out the implications of their own worldview, a world without God. Now, you may say, some skeptics do, well, there's not really, you know, God's not really there. If he is, we don't really know. But in either case, let's not think about that too deeply. That's kind of dark. You know, Holmes is kind of morbid there. And, you know, talking about that sort of ruins holiday dinner conversation. And that's fine, I guess, if you're thinking that. But what I want you to see, if you're doing that today, is that you're trying to get a kind of peace by not thinking. Does it make sense? By not thinking. The only way you can go on is by literally not thinking deeply about what you claim to believe. But for the Christian, Paul is saying he's inviting us to do exactly the opposite. He's saying we can have peace precisely by thinking deeply over and over again about what we say we believe. So here's what that means for the Christian today. If you're a Christian, you say, man, I believe this. I believe all this doctrine stuff, God stuff, and you're not at peace. And maybe, maybe it means you're not thinking today. And maybe, maybe you should. So first, Paul is saying we can think our way to peace, but we cannot just only do that, not just think our way to peace, but we can, number two, we can also, here's the word, thank our way to peace. We can thank our way to peace. Look at verse six. He goes on, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with, what's the word? Come on, thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now you'll notice, Paul doesn't say, if you just pray, peace will come automatically. Now, it might, it can, it probably maybe has for you before. But he says, no, here, he says, pray with something. He says, pray with thanksgiving. That means when you pray, you bring your request to God and you thank him before anything happens. And if you do that, if you pray with thanksgiving, he says, peace will come. Now, that may seem backwards to you. You, think, you may think, I thought I was just supposed to thank God 
like after it seemed like my prayer was answered and the thing happened the way I wanted or the good thing worked out. And you can do that. You should say thank you for that. But that, Paul is saying, Paul's saying, that won't bring you peace. Why not? It's because just thanking after the fact, that just acknowledges your current circumstances. And your current circumstances have nothing to do with Christian peace, with the peace of God. But thanking beforehand, when you pray, hear me, it's far less about what is happening to you, and it's far more about remembering who God is, even in spite of how you feel. Who is he? Oh, hasn't he said, come on, Romans 8, he is the one who is somehow working out good, somehow, for your life, somehow, even if you can't or aren't seeing it. Yeah, he has said that. He's promised that. Oh, but we don't believe that, which is why when we pray, many times we don't pray with thanksgiving, with gratitude, and our hearts aren't filled with the peace of God. But God has promised, if you are his child, to somehow work everything out for your good, which means this, that God will answer your prayer today In the way, I believe, you would have asked it if you had known all along what was best for you. Now, sometimes we see that in this lifetime. Sometimes we don't. But it's always nice to see it when we do see it, to remind us to trust him when we're not seeing it right now. I'll give an example. Uh, Years ago, when I was a freshman, just two or three, when I was a freshman in college, there was a girl, and this girl I really wanted to marry, and I thought I would try to marry her, and I'd try to get God to help me out, and I tried to help God help me out, and, uh, and help God answer my prayer, and she was a nice girl, she was his pastor's daughter, and I prayed, and I asked God for her, but the, her main problem uh, was her name, because her name wasn't Carrie, her name wasn't Carrie Stevens, and of course Carrie Stevens, that's my wife, wasn't Carrie Stevens either back then, but you know what I mean, and after that girl had dated for a while, and I had prayed about it, and the answer to my prayer was no, I got real mad at God, got real mad at God, got real angry, what do you mean, this is what I want, aren't you supposed to be there to give me what I want, he said no son, he said let it go, trust me, trust me. A number of years later, because I did, I think, uh, Carrie Stevens became Carrie Stevens. Yay. Well, what happened? Well, God answered my prayer the way I would have if I knew what he knew, which was that person at that time was not the right person for me. And, of course, the honest truth is in those years in between the breakup and the altar and the you know, tears and the, and the honeymoon and the altar and all that, I did not live at peace. I was not at peace. I was about being single. I worried. I fretted. I was anxious. And because of that, I did what I think a lot of single people do. Maybe you're doing today. You walk in and you say, is he the one? Is she the one? Is he the one? Is she the one? Is he the one? Is she the one? They're here. Are they here, Lord? Just tell me. Just speak to me. Back of the head. Glance, Lord. And I'll believe you. Just give me something, Jesus. Is there a heartbeat and a pulse? And I'll believe, you know. But the problem was not being single or being married because, let me tell you, being married is not a cure for anxiety. It's not. It's not. Being married is great, but it's not the cure for anxiety. The problem in my heart, my heart, Morgan's heart, was about trusting God and praying with thanksgiving that somehow he knew better than I did. 
And he did. And he answered my prayer in the way I think that I would have if I'd have known what he knew. But for a long time, I didn't, but I had to trust him. I had to. Here's the point. I had to thank my way to peace. So we can think our way to peace. We can thank our way to peace. But there's one more way Paul shows us we can experience peace. It's by loving our way to peace. Loving our way to peace. Paul says, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise... What's he talking about? He's talking about the things that your heart loves. Your heart loves the things your heart goes after, lovely things, uh, excellent things, praiseworthy things. Paul is making the incredible statement that peace can come through what your heart loves most. Now, in Paul's day, there were basically two kinds of philosophical thought around this whole conversation of peace and love and all that. Two conversations divided into, into two camps. They were called the Stoics on one hand, maybe you heard of them, the Epicureans on the other hand. And those two groups had two radically different ways of trying to get peace through two radically different value systems. And broadly speaking, those ideas still exist today. On one hand, the Stoics said the way to peace was to live a good, moral, virtuous life. They said stuff outside you can change, like the world can change, governments, cultures, all that, circumstances. The only thing you can control is your own virtue. Now, it's probably like a lot of advice we give to our kids. It works up to a point. He said life is tumultuous. Deny yourself and you'll be fine. If you love the moral life, life will be good. But the Epicureans said just the opposite. They said, listen, your heart wasn't made to be cooped up. You're, you, know, you weren't made to stay inside. You're a free-range human being. You know? Go out, experience life, food, pleasure, sex, experience. Discipline won't make you happy. You'll never be at peace until you let it all hang out, kids. So love the pleasurable life, and life will be good. But in the middle of, into the middle of both those thoughts, both those camps, many years later came a person, a man, a philosopher, named Augustine, the great African thinker who, on, who looking at Paul on one hand, looking at his own culture and the Roman Empire on the other, Augustine had this to say about peace. He said, listen, you can't look inside yourself or rely on your own virtue for peace because your you know, virtue can change, definitions of right and wrong change by culture, your nature is flawed. Your morals will let you down. You're going to mess it up somehow. But you can't just love pleasure outside you in the world. That's always changing. And what looks like pleasure is many times empty. We know this. And the chase many times leads you worse. So no matter which one you are, Stoic, Epicurean, liberal, conservative, somewhere in the middle, if you're looking to something that is always changing, either within you or without you, to bring you peace, like a culture, like a government, like yourself, you'll always be mad, he said. You'll always be angry. You'll be perpetually crushed, disappointed, let down. And so this is what Augustine said to both parties. He said, quote, only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Bring peace. Only love of the immutable. What's that mean? It means our problems come from loving first Anything that changes. And he means that peace can come, can come through loving first the one thing that even the worst circumstances in life only give you more of. Come on, think about it. If you go through the worst things in life, an abusive, violent, some kind of death or whatever, what, what do you get for it? The presence of God if you love him most for eternity. 
He wrote, God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And God will not withhold his love from you unless you withhold your love from him. And of course, he's right. Only love of the immutable, something that doesn't change can bring peace. It's the only beautiful thing that doesn't change, fade, spoil, run out. So church, there it is. Go home and love the immutable. Why don't you sing a song about the immutable while you're at it? What rhymes with immutable? What can we say? You know, no, have, have fun with that. No, listen, you can't do that. You can't love an idea alone, an ideal alone. And Paul here, you'll notice, he never says that peace comes ultimately from loving something abstract. See, all of Paul's thinking, all of Paul's thinking, all of Paul's loving points in the end not to an unchanging idea, but to an unchanging person. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it goes beyond your mind, it doesn't make sense. Oh, that peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Look, in Christ Jesus. Why does he say this? Why does Paul connect the peace of God hmm, with a person named Jesus? Well, centuries before this to another people, another people group before the birth of Christ living in great darkness. They had an unsettled political future. They were threatened by enemies within and without. There was one person named Isaiah, a Hebrew prophet. And Isaiah, once upon a time, had a vision. And this is what it was. He wrote it down. Isaiah's vision, he said this. He said, I see a people walking in darkness, but they've seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. So what, what was the light? Isaiah, come on, what's the light? Is the light an idea? The abstract, uh, just a nice virtue? No, Isaiah says the light is a person. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. There will be a person of peace, Isaiah said. He'd actually be more like a ruler, like a prince of peace. He would be born into this world like a human, but like a divine being. He would be given to us from the outside like a a God-man. His reign of peace would never end. And one day, oh, hundreds of years later, that child was born. That son was given. His name was Jesus. Oh, and he lived an extraordinary life. You know this. When he walked into a room, peace came. Oh, when he walked into a place, souls were settled. When he walked into people groups, scattered, anxious by life, they left differently. He never raised a sword. He never brandished a weapon. He lived a kingly, though he had no income, a princely, though he had no palace, an extraordinary, though he had no title, life of peace, except. And this is the shocking twist to Isaiah's prince and Paul's person of peace. In a garden called Gethsemane, the day before he died, he said, Jesus Christ said, that his soul was troubled, anxious to the point of death. And a day later on that Roman cross, as he was dying, being executed for claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision, Jesus Christ cried out he screamed out actually my god why have you forsaken me what was happening jesus was losing his peace 
He was losing his peace. He was coming apart. He was being scattered. He was being divided. Isaiah wrote that the punishment for our what? Come on. Our peace was upon him so that by his wounds we can be healed. Jesus went in our place for our peace. And let me tell you, when you think on that, when you thank God for that, when you love that, the immutable, unchanging child and son, the love of God become human, who was given to us, given for us, given as us, when you keep your heart and your mind fixed on him, let me tell you, peace will come. You say, Morgan... That's just, man, that's like a pipe dream, dude. That's like, man, churchy, nice religious stuff. No, sir, it's not. No, ma'am, it's not. It's reality. It's truth. Why else? Let me give you an example. As we close, why else do you think that a a Chicago businessman, 19th century, devoted Christian named Horatio Spafford, old school name, he could write these words. We're going to look at him. After he lost everything in the great Chicago fire, after he lost four children, his daughters were all drowned crossing the Atlantic. How else do you think he could write these words? He wrote this, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whether it's good or bad, he says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, he's being attacked, the trials should come, he knew them. Let this blessed assurance, what? Control, not changing, that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Last verse, he's talking about his sin now. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What's he doing, even in the midst of unspeakable tragedy? Come on. He's thinking, he's thinking, he's loving his way to peace. He's not passive here. He's not sitting around. He's active. He's taking what he knows and what he believes and applying it even to how he feels. This man has no reason to be at peace, and yet he is. This is showing us that peace is possible. Peace is what we long for most, I think, in our world and in ourselves. It's what the world needs, and peace is what Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, came to bring us. It's a gift for us at Christmas. Hope you can say amen to that church. Let me pray for you. We'll try to apply this. Lord, we just come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for the truth of this, for the promise of this, for the, Lord, for the goodness of this. Lord, it's like an anchor cast out into our future. It calls us to go to a new place beyond ourselves. Lord, I'm praying for every person here, no matter how we feel. Though Satan should buffet, the trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our soul. Lord, you care so much about us, about the, the condition and quality of our souls today. I pray you'd meet us right now. If you're here and you're saying, man, I am not at peace right now. I need the peace of God in a new way, in a fresh way. Maybe for the first time, would you raise your hand right here, right now? And say, Lord, would you help me? Oh, God, would you help these with hands raised? Lord, give them the grace. Give all of us the grace. The Holy Spirit just nudge to think, to thank, and to love our way into the peace of God, which will guard our heart.
and our minds. Christ Jesus. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Corey, would you come up and close us? Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.